welcome to the Web Policy Talk podcast recorded live at the Impact and Policy Research Institute Impri New Delhi very warm welcome to one and all i am simi mehta ceo and editorial director of impact and policy research institute and i wish you all a very good evening we are all aware of how covid-19 has impacted almost every aspect of human life and livelihoods due to restrictions imposed on the mobility and movement to check the spread of virus international trade has been one of the activities that has been deeply impacted this has been specially true for those countries having great dependency on chinese goods and services we have also seen how several countries including india proactively played an important role in facilitating the exports of medical supplies personal protective equipment ventilators face masks etc but on the other hand we have also seen how export restrictive measures and policies adopted by several governments to fight the global uh, shortages In fact the WTO the World Trade Organization has mentioned that these export restrictions must be targeted proportionate temporary and transparent and we also see that the trade now shows slight signs of rebound while recovery is still uncertain to gain a vivid understanding of what trade policy in the post covid 19 era looks like we have we have all gathered here together this evening to be a testimony to an enthralling special lecture by professor manoj pant with the session being chaired by professor sugato marji and insights from mr david raskina and mr tk arun i now take the opportunity to introduce to you professor marji the first distinguished professor at indian institute of foreign trade he is the project director of center for training and research in public finance and policy a ministry of finance funded initiative Professor Marjit is the former Vice Chancellor of University of Calcutta. He is the editor of the South Asian Journal of Macroeconomics and Public Finance. He was the RBI Chair, Professor of Industrial Economics at the Centre Studies in Social Sciences in Calcutta. The first Sukhumoy Chakravarti Professor at the Centre for Economic Studies, CESP, JNU. Professor Marjit has also been a visiting professor at several reputed in universities across the world and has published over 150 papers and several books with international journals and publishing houses like the oxford university press springer nature nature american economic review etc professor marjit has been the recipient of several awards including the prestigious mahalobis gold medal of the uh, of the economic trick society and the vkrv rao national prize so i am privileged to in- invite you to make your opening remarks over to you sir uh <clears throat> thank you can you hear me all of you yes sir y- oh good yes. uh yes thanks a lot for uh, 
giving me the opportunity to come and uh, and be present here and also to chair the session in which uh, a very distinguished speaker is going to talk about trade policy. Uh, of course, from uh, uh, we are very close friends uh, and and we belong to the same institute, so we know each other very well. For and also at JNU, I know Manoj for a long time. It's also a great opportunity to be with these distinguished. Uh, uh, panelists uh, all around and those who are here today attending this talk. Um, uh, I'm just going to spend just few sentences because you know we are here to hear, uh, listen to Manoj and uh, he's going to talk about uh, the trade policy post COVID-19 uh, scenario. And I believe that uh, we are going to listen to one of the most competent, experienced economists of the country who is capable of speaking about uh, the future of trade policy as it stands and the best uh, practice that we should follow uh, in the post-COVID-19 situation. So I'm not going to, I'm going to listen to him because I'm going to talk about uh, his talk for a few minutes after he finishes his lecture. So here I am, uh, 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 you know, just uh, giving the uh, floor to, to Manoj, but I think uh, Manoj also, you were going to introduce Manoj, right? I mean, or... yes, go, yes. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Thank, you. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you very much, sir, for setting the tone of the session. And it is my honor to introduce to you Professor Manoj Pant, an expert on international trade. He's the director of Indian Institute of Foreign Trade. Before this, he was a professor at the Center for International Trade and Development, CITD, at Jawaharlal Nehru University. Professor Panth has earned his PhD in economics from the Southern Methodist University at Dallas in Texas, USA. Professor Panth has also taught in the University of Delhi, IIM Lucknow, IIT Delhi, Southern Methodist University, uh, Columbia University, etc. Professor Panth has been the economic advisor and consultant to the government of Nagaland for around two decades now and has authored several books and articles as well as new newspaper articles in leading dailies like the Economic Times, Financial Express, Live Mint, etc. Professor Panth, I am so grateful you could join us today and I welcome you to deliver this special lecture. Over to you, sir. Sir, your mic. Please unmute, yes. Thank you, Dr. Mehta, uh, and welcome to Mr. David. Shubhuta, of course, old friend, and uh, of course, TK, an even older friend of the Economic Times, TK Arun, and of course, Mr. Arjun. Okay, I won't take too long. I'll take my usual 35 minutes. What I'll do, I won't go into too many numbers, although I have them here. I'll just indicate the broad quota. Let me summarize broadly the two points that I will make. First, I will talk about how People have been comparing the present recession, COVID-19 recession, if you can call it, with previous recessions of 30s and 2008. Let's not go back further than that. I'll make some points about that. And my point will be that they are not exact, they are actually quite different. And therefore, to give solutions of one to solutions of the other is quite out of the And I think I will conclude that the reason is the economists hate to say we don't know. We are like lawyers. We can't say we don't know. But I'll be honest to tell you, I don't know. Uh, second thing is then, given the light the fact that this is a crisis and all crisis leads to some change, I will talk about trade policy after COVID. I will talk specifically to India because we have an Indian audience, right? 
But of course, the implications to any other country in the world are obvious. And I will talk about how the implications of trade policy, maybe COVID-19, the crisis frustrates it. But the changes in any case were due. And the reason why they were due, I will mention over time. So this brought me the two things I will say. So comparing this COVID situation from say March, April, August still ongoing, uh, with 30s, 1930s and 2008 sessions. Well, the, you know, there are some, uh, there is some similarity, but very subtle difference. The similarity is very interesting. The similarity is that in this current crisis, we have had, of course, what happened, there was an advisory, WHO was the first one to give some advisories. Then every country, we discussed how it can be handled globally. The final analysis was that actually there was no multilateral response. Everyone for himself, which is very similar to the to recessions, right? Then everyone says things are very bad globally. You've got to do something. Then it's everyone for himself, whether in 1930s or actually also 2008. I'll mention a little bit more of that. So that's the one place it is, uh, I would say, which is, which is uh, there. But let me mention the most important micro differences from there. First of all, and I will here refer you to the, uh, uh, by the way, a lot of numbers I can give as to why the crisis is very similar recession in terms of employment, in terms of output, it's probably going to have much worse implications than 2008 for output, uh, probably closer to the 30% decline in, uh, you know, in world trade, which happened in the 30s. That's probably what's going to happen in this period. But otherwise, these are minor issues of numbers. I will not get into that. Uh, but if you look at the WTO has a, world, has a web page, which they introduced for this COVID. And if you look at the responses of countries, there's something very obvious. That the response of countries only to the crisis, to nothing else, nothing else changes at all. And I'm going to mention a few things. For example, everyone had the same restrictions. Ban on exports of medical infrastructure and complete zero duty and liberalization of imports of medicines. That was exactly the response. So those who were exporting medicines tried to prevent it. Those who were exporting medical equipment tried to prevent it. Three, four months down the line, exactly the opposite happened. Now everyone's opened up everything. India was a importer of medical in, uh, you know, uh, hardware, now it's an exporter of medical hardware. India was not exporting medicines, but very soon because of pressures from various places. So countries use their bilateral pressures to tell someone, look, if you don't give me hardware, we won't give you software. If you allow me to use that term. And that's really all that happened. So the first problem is that this was not as broad-based a response as in earlier recessions, whether 1930s or 2008. Secondly, if you look again, as I mentioned, that the response was only on hardware and software as far as if you allow me to use the word for medicinal products, but it was very soon reversed, didn't last very long. And finally, agricultural exports were never affected. No one prevented that. I must tell you a joke here. I was part of a committee of the ministry. And the only time I saw that was someone in UAE said, you India must certify that the rice is COVID-free. 
So everyone's trying to figure out how the hell do we decide that the rice is cold free. But barring these funny incidents which do happen right in the beginning in uh, early April. Otherwise, there'll be no restrictions on exports of, uh, of, uh, of products as such. Now, so that's the first point I'm going to try to make, that the, the, the major difference is that in micro terms is that the response has been only to the crisis and not broad-based. And in fact, the changes which have been taking place are only the response to the crisis as a consequence of trade. You know, countries have switched over their production to making medical hardware. Many are now making more medicines. India has a great opportunity, further opportunities, pharma. Beyond that, really nothing much, no major trade policy changes took place as happened in many of the other countries. Now let's look at the, uh, uh, the macro differences. And this is very important point I'm going to come back to at the end. In the 1930s and the 2008 recessions followed by more than one decade in the case of 2008 and about a decade of unprecedented global expansion in trade. 80 to 2005, 2008 in the case of global trade now, then 1920 or so till 1929, 30 in the case of unprecedented. So you had a build-up, economic build-up of uh, about a decade or more than a decade after 1980 over here. And then you had, uh, you know, what you might call a financial crisis of a different nature in the 30s and a different nature in the 2000s, but both were financial crisis, which led to problems with expectations. And then the recession started in both cases. So at least I will say that those two crises we understood because the, 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 the issues were endogenous. We know there was an endogenous problem, endogeneity because like usual trade cycles we read about in economics, it was caused by the economic expansion itself, which became too much and then someone said, well, let's call it, let's call a halt and that's when the crisis started. On the other hand, the COVID is an exogenous crisis. It is not as if there's a buildup. To it. It just happened. Now, so the first of all, this crisis is an exogenous crisis. It is not an endogenous crisis, which is what these cycles, trade cycles that we learn, which lead to uh, recessions, are endogenous, not exogenous. So you cannot say, look what happened there, look what happened now, and let's lose. It makes no sense. But even in this pandemic, one interesting part which sets it apart from the other one, there was some cooperation. Why? Because the nature of the crisis was the public health, which is a public good. Whereas in the earlier crisis, it was all trade, right? Trade is not a public good. I can stop my import of shoes. It doesn't matter to anyone else in the world. But this was a public health crisis. So it was a public good. Problem of failure of, collect, of the collect, uh, individual to deliver public good. And then countries started cooperating, which of course was rare, and we set it apart at the macro level from the earlier crisis. Okay. Uh, so that's the first point, that one is an endogenous crisis, which we know how to handle uh, uh, in uh, economics. And the other was an exogenous crisis, which frankly we don't know, because we have no literature on that as such. And then it's ex and exogeneity is, uh, and it led to some cooperation, mainly because of the public good nature of this crisis. The second and very important point, and I at least wrote about this quite a lot in my few columns in Mint and all, you know, the COVID, is due to a fear of the unknown. It is not something to you know why. Why is it? Why did you 
जिसको फर्टिलिटी हैजन बीन एज बैड सम पीपल से इन मेनी कंट्रीज फर्टिलिटी इन दाइन फ्लू वॉज वर्स Others, which I have tried to argue, is that this TV and social media have built this thing even more than worse than it is. Here, doctors say no. The responses we don't know. We still don't know till today what could happen to a person. So it's the fear of the unknown which is the problem in this case. On the other hand, in the earlier crisis of 30s and 40s, we know what happened. We know there was a failure of expectations, asymmetry information. Let me mention that since there are sure non. economics viewers here what it meant is that there's a certain point of time where the expectations of producers and consumers don't match that's what keynes talked about producers like to spend produce more but they say there's no market consumers would like to buy more but they say there's no income now if the two could get together the producers say okay i'll start producing more you guys agree to buy more and it's no problem but we know that the uh, the consequence is you know of two different sets of agents producers and consumers not being together in a decision making means leads to what is called the isolation paradox so you have a suboptimal uh, situation that we end up with an unemployment equilibrium remember keynes talked about not unemployment up unemployment equilibrium someone else has to step in and say i know better than these two guys let me drop money from the helicopter and what is called pump priming that was the keynesian solution which worked in the 30s extremely well didn't work in 2008 for different reasons but at least kept the situation better than it is today so in both the cases we know economics knows that there was some behavioral issues which are important and those behavioral issues are what we know we how we can do something to alter but what are you going to do today today is not behavioral issues i don't know I don't know when T.K. Arun Singh says, hey, "Look, I think I'm okay. You know, I can move." It's very difficult. You know, Keynes was able to develop his uh, whole uh, theory of uh, unemployment largely on the basis of the fact that we know there is some point. So interest rates, when they rise, some expect them to fall, some expect they rise further than speculation. But there's some interest rate beyond which everyone thinks the interest will fall, and then they all get rid of uh, bonds or buy only bonds, and they hold only money. So everyone knows that. but we don't know we don't know what that level at which uh, david's fear will be different will be same as mine same as tk's or same as i don't know because i don't have it so please remember this is important i'll come back to this at a later point as far as i'm concerned the issue today is not the cold recession how to get back to january 2020 we were still in a recession people forget you know it's now all all political finger pointing going on but we are still at 2020 is where we want to get back to we were stuck even at that point since 2008 so why think only about and that's why i particularly personally believe as my view uh is i do believe that when the when we get out of this crisis it will be a v shaped recovery certainly it will not be and i in my i quickly end this part of it i don't want to go too far i say it's like a patient you know we are like patients who've been told hey you know you've got terminal cancer 10 days to go all of us and the 10th day someone says hey sorry we made a mistake things are not as bad as you thought you have a long life to go you got 30 years what will happen i'll probably go overboard in expenditure because i don't know you know i thought my life was open suddenly i'm told hey you got a long time to go i will probably respond much more exuberantly to the end then i would have 
in that same March consultant. So there I was led by past expectations of last 10 years where there was a recession. You know, just be clear about the 2000 recession that we were in before we get this. Since 2016, if I remember the numbers I have here, the IMF and the World Bank, see those two uh, twin agencies are wonderful. World Bank is always more optimistic, IMF is always more. IMF, sometimes people call them the right wing and the left wing organizations. And the World Bank says every year since 2016, they say we expect world output to grow by about 2 to 3 percent. And then the IMF will come and say, no, I think it's going to be about one and a half to two percent. Actually, it's about one percent. They have failed consistently in their method of es in estimating whether the recession is going to grow globally. It hasn't happened. And that reason I won't get into now. That's another issue. So that's my point that first of all, as far as the, these new recessions are concerned, the solutions to the two are completely different. And to say that now all governments have to do is pump money and problem solved, that's silly. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And economics tells that doesn't make any sense unless I can solve the problem of expectations and fear. Let me not repeat a cliche, frankly, till everyone knows that either it's disappeared or it's become less effective, or if I know the vaccine is coming. Frankly, uh, I think if someone came and said, we want a vaccine, it'll all be over, let me tell you, I can guarantee you, it'll all be over. It's this fear which is the problem. It is not the lack of income. You know, let me mention one thing. Take the USA whose numbers I've looked at. If you look at the expenditure on food and medicines and health, the two things that were working over time, in fact, most of trade driven at that time was because of these two things, food and medicines, is about 20%. So very simple, for two months, except for 20%, the rest of the economy came to a stop. Why was India affected more? Because we have much more labor involved in the production process than these countries. These countries don't have, they've got automation, they've got so many things. They don't have the problem with the crisis was you add to end physical interaction. So the one thing to do is stop all trade. No port people, no product, no product transmission of COVID through rice, for example, can't come. But India, the problem was the opposite. Now, either you can do a solution like China did. You know, if you come out of Wuhan, what we heard, we'll shoot you. We can't do that. Look what happened to migrants in India. Although, frankly, that was the correct strategy. Just no one move out, but can't do that. So I'm just saying that the solutions to the two are completely different than anyone who says that the weight of the solution to the recession in 2019, fair enough. But to say now in this COVID, the way to solve the problem is to pump money into the economy, a bad mistake. I mean, this is not how it works. And if you look at it, as far as I can make out, the USA, for example, pumped in a lot of money after the COVID crisis. Please go back and look at the numbers. They gave 1500, 1100, 800. My daughter got it. Money to the income tax. Nothing. Most people built up a nest egg. Not very little of that was translated to actual expenditure. And that we know. Unless some income is part of your long term expected income, it doesn't make any difference to expenditure. So I'm saying that this, saying that, you know, let's all pump prime and pump money to the economy and problems solved COVID wise is completely false. Whereas well, it may be true in general. Okay, let me now come back to uh, 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 the night to the Indian uh, situation. 
about 10, 10 minutes more, 15 minutes more. How much time? Yes, yes, sir. 15 minutes? 15 minutes. Okay, yes, very good. I'll 15 minutes. Sir. Now let me come to the Indian response. And the Indian response is not what I am saying. The response to me is not how much money you pump in and how much you do, despite the fact that the government is bankrupt. You go bankrupt, someone who's bankrupt can't be expected to pump money. They will have to keep giving solutions. You take today, I'll, you, I won't take tomorrow. And, you know, trading future consumption for present consumption, that's possible. But they don't have money. But I'm saying that is not the solution to present crisis. Let me look at, I'm not going to go too much uh, into, and this part of things important in terms of changes in trade policy. You see, if you look at India after 1990, we all know that. I will not talk about 1990 and what all happened. Now, three things, actually, uh, if you want, four things happened for, me, for India and really for all countries. One was tariffs. Tariffs were cut, phenomenally, right? From something like 100, 100 plus percent to about 10, 15 percent in one decade. Frankly, unprecedented by any historical example. I've never seen any country drop their average tariff from close to 100 and some case 300 percent to around 10 12 percent average it is unprecedented the developed countries we forget had very high tariffs in the 60s 70s they did not suddenly they have not been free traders right through despite the fact that free trade is the philosophy that they have had high tariffs so we dropped phenomenally okay in terms of tariffs so that one issue is around tariffs and i'm going to talk about protectionism the other of course is wto now, WTO changed the game completely. The 1948 GATT said, it was a voluntary agreement, right? If you get, we think it's a good idea to get together, see what happens, please don't work. Let's sit together and agree what each of us will do. Once we agree together, then we'll implement it. If you do it individually, we'll be back to the session. World trade, you know, the tariff-driven recession, or, uh, or if you want to call it competitive devaluation recession of 30. So let's get together. But it was completely voluntary. No one is penalized. All developing countries are given a carte blanche. If you want to come on board, fine. Don't want to, that's also okay. Because the political economy of USA was then not the developing country. Their political economy was, we have got the Second World War. We are the only ones who can were standing. All the rest are gone. No infrastructure in Europe, nothing in Russia, nothing in Japan. We are the only guys. We've got this you know, huge ocean around us. We'll rebuild the world, the Marshall Plan. But we can only rebuild the world if people buy from us, right? So how do we make people buy from us? Let's make the world open. Let's end this old system of UK and Commonwealth preferences. Let's get on the new thing called the GATT, although we, they vetoed the ITO, so that we can now start progressing. And actually, it's very successful. Free trade was extremely successful. Artist trade, global trade was very successful, spreading wealth around the world since 1950. So that's the second thing. Now what WTO does, it, it takes, opens the game completely. 48 GATT only about merchandise trade, commodities. GATT says no, uh, WTO says no, we also have to be agriculture. And we also must talk about services. Then the multinationals say, what about us? We do everything. What about us? So then, then we have trims. That is also got on the agenda. And then the uh, big companies say, but we are spending all the money in research. Who's going to protect that? So you get tips. So you know, the agenda is now, everything is part of WTO and it is made mandatory. It's a huge jump 
from 1948. Anyway, that's the next game changer of WTO. Then we come to FTI, especially in the context of FTI. You will find that in the period 1990 onwards, number of investment measures were taken for investment liberalization. Even China did not have a reasonable foreign investment policy till 1990 for investment. India started with 93, I think, a plan which is said that we've now encouraged it. So FDI became an element of policy. Now, what is FDI? FDI, you are either trading either a service or a commodity. What else is there? You don't trade companies, right? You trade either technology which is not known, invisible, or you trade a service or you trade a commodity. Nothing else is there. So it's a trade by any other means. So FDI became a new part and finally RTAs. So what I'm going to argue is that all these things, the trade policy is no longer what it used to be in the in the 1960s and 70s because the nature of the world game has changed completely. And therefore to assess it on the basis of what very silly articles I hear in many media today from very well-known people, I think it's quite silly. Let me indicate that. First of all, consider tariffs. So I'm saying trade policy now to me is not just a case of tariffs, it is tariffs plus your issue of WTO and FDI and plus the issue of RTAs. All these together make up trade policy. Let's look at tariffs. The first point I'm going to make is tariffs are no longer. The only visible thing we have is tariff is what is notified by people to the WTO. And people alter their applied tariffs, they can change. They cannot alter their bound tariffs, they can move their applied tariffs up and down, and that is what we talk about as protectionism. Take India also. But what I'm saying, going to argue is that this is no longer an indication of protectionism. And the reason is because the nature of commodities trade in the world has changed dramatically from the 50s and 60s when we all learned, many of us learned, Shubhato learned, I learned, and now we also teach what we call is protectionism. Protectionism is always meant, how do I raise my tariff, lower my tariff? I'm saying this is completely irrelevant because the world today, trade is dominated as what is called intra-industry trade, discovered in the mid-70s, which is that you're selling let's say cold rolled steel, and you are importing uh, universal plates and chains. So it's trade within the same industrial classification, what we call, or if you want to call it more, uh, more routine words, trade intermediates. It's no longer I export food and you bring me computers. That trade does not exist anymore. The whole of the literature on protection is fascinating because I teach the same thing in trade theory. All these theorems of free trade is the best, whether cooperative or non-cooperative, was built around this theory called the Hegshosen theorem, which as far as I'm aware, does not explain anything. Empirically, the only thing which is supposed to be the most important determinant of trade is technology, which is no longer, a, which is not considered a factor in the traditional thing. So first of all, all these arguments that free trade is the best policy, either unilaterally or multilaterally is based on a theory which no longer has any validity because the nature of trade is completely changed. It's intra-industry trade. It's about 60-70% minimum, I would say 50-60% of world trade or what we call supply chains. So the relevant concept of protection is not nominal tariffs, but what we learned, I'm sure TK, you learned the same thing in college, Shubhat and Shubhat did too, is something called, which we've forgotten, called the ERP, effective rate of protection. What does it do to my value added? 
Mr. David is here from Exim Bank. You will agree with me. What matters to me when I'm exporting a final product? What happens to the duties on my components too? I mean, if you if you raise the duty on my final product and at the same time you raise the duty on my components, I'm back to normal. What's the use to me? No protection. In fact, I will not mention here, I can, those interested, I can tell you studies I've looked at which show that between 2005 and 2015, inspecting certain select areas, the ERP is not changed at all. Because the politicians keep jigging one up and down. And the unfortunate problem is that the trade statistics are not geared as product and input. The product is somewhere in your statistics and the input is somewhere else. It's very laborious job to separate inputs and outputs in, the, in a normal available international trade data. So I don't know. I'm not saying they're not protection. I'm just saying I don't hear. What do people say? Oh my God, ceramic type duties have gone up by 20%. What does it matter? If at the same time, I raise the duty on components by 15% makes no difference, I'm still as protected. It may be a bad thing globally, that's a different issue, but protection is no longer related to nominal tariffs and no government seems to, at least we don't, seems to be doing any calculation of ERPs and simply has become more a political tool. CEO raise tariffs to your back. Actually, 2005, 2015, no change. And I don't mention here exactly, uh, I can tell you some data which I have. Yeah, in the, uh, what is actually happening, that of course, whoever wants, I will tell them the reference for that. What is actually happening is protection is taking the form of non-tariff barriers. No one used tariffs. Interestingly, 2008 was a major world recession. 2009 world output fell by 1%, yet go to the WTO site, no one raised tariffs, unlike 30s. What they did do is raise non-tariff barriers. US is the, probably the most guilty. Well, I would, say, I would say China, I would say the whole of China is a non-tariff barrier first. I don't even know which part of China is a, is a non-tariff whole China, starting from when you start speaking to them till you exit, everything is a non-tariff barrier. So this is the method by which people are using. It's better to calculate ERP before saying a country has become more protectionist or less protectionist. That's one. Uh, let's come to the second issue of trade agreements. The first point is evaluating trade policy as being protectionist on the grounds of the tariff changes. Maybe nice as an article of faith, but as far as I know, is not supported by any trade theory. Because the nature of trade has changed. What was supposed to be protective is not what you are trading today. Actual theorem doesn't determine trade today. Much of trade today is between developing countries, similar countries, not between dissimilar countries. It's not India and USA or Africa and Europe. It's not like that anymore. It's developing, developing. Even developed, developed country trade declined dramatically after the 1995s. It's all different nature of trade has changed. So how can you apply the same old uh, criteria? Second thing is in the case of uh, RTS. Once again, everyone says, oh, India is the one I heard. Media, I'm sorry to say, it's very, oh my God, India really missed the bus in our set. India missed the bus, but please find out what India is saying. By the way, I'm not part of the government, so anyone thinks so, and I don't want to be a government spokesman, I never will be. He can know that very well. But the fact remains, what is the government? And by the way, this, this ASEAN, which current government said they will be read, please note, in 2012, the then different government, 
that minister came on parliament said we've got to relook at the rtas at the rta also and why is that look at the nature of trade from 2008 the share of manufacturers in world trade stayed at at about something like 60% it's not moving the real growth in trade that's taking place in what is called ites information technology enabled services and or service that's the growing company now that you don't want to negotiate you only want to negotiate merchandise trade let me give you examples i can go on for next two hours only on this one topic take indo singapore indo singapore 2005 cca says india and singapore will within 90 days start discussing the mras and which services we will trade because trade services require discussion of internal domestic till today nothing the asean agreement not mind please go in the net and look at yourself the asean agreement we started in 2005 said that we will start with the commodity trade but we will very quickly go to the services trade it is 2015 that they finally agreed now let's start discussing and for the first time in 2015 the asean countries notified yes discussion of services to the wto and you can see the state of affairs of that discussion we are now 2000 nothing has moved so is it wrong for for any country forget india to say look let's negotiate the nature of trade it is today that's because this wasn't there earlier now it's changed things have changed how about taking those on board rcep you tell me what is the difference between rcep and indo china trade all the countries of the rcep buying india have always traded with china they always had trade with china they had a trade surplus they export inputs and i'm talking about all that belt china you know the south africa sorry uh, south korea uh, japan that whole belt they export inputs of varying kinds to china where it is assembled and exported to europe as well so that that supply chain is well known so what is going to change there nothing will change it is not as suddenly malaysia become supply chain or the assembly point they don't have the numbers only difference was india the whole of this thing. so what has changed in that in the nature of trade so i didn't understand so as i said i think that the government is completely right in saying look the nature of trade has changed let's negotiate all of trade now not by design i am very clear so nothing happens by design anyway by pure accident india is where we are because of services because of frankly that's different debate purely circumstances we didn't plan anything there was no government of information technology up 2000 business circles was now they formed the it industry we are gone abhi tak things were very good because there was no government so we never planned it just happened to be the right place the right time but fact remains that we seem to have something look at us we've gone from zero to almost 5 4.5% in share of it enabled services trade and we are stuck at between 1 and 1/2 in percent in merchandise between 950 and now now you can keep going as to why but the reality is you must be doing something right right maybe our minds are the only thing we work in this country nothing else is possible but that is what you have to negotiate coming to the last thing fdi policy if you look here it's fascinating and i've done a special study i've written books on this from 1991 till today not a single liberalization measure in foreign investment has ever been reversed and i don't mean political pronouncements i mean notifications by the ministry not one has ever been reversed. not one even during those heady coalition days in the late 90s governments kept coming and going 
nothing. Even during the left government, they never took back anything. Forget the others. Even the fund type, nothing goes back. Which is why India's FDI policy, whatever these problems, has been the most consistent. Some may say the current opening of defense is new. It isn't. It isn't. The day you agree that defense for the rest of the world is industry, just like everything else, you are back to normal. Just because it's not part of WTO doesn't make it a special industry. There's nothing new. And nothing has ever been reversed. So I am simply saying why the FDI policy change has been so important. You know, there are many people who talk about Hartman Empire, their slogans, and everyone's got their own interpretation. Whatever I can see is one thing the government seems to be committed to is technology. I don't care what the reasons are. Everything I have read teaches me the only thing determines trade is technology. Resources and labor are not the factors. Just because you have cheap labor doesn't mean I'm going to suddenly export a lot of labor intensive products. That's again a complete debate whether India has an unskilled labor advantage or not. But I won't get to that. But the fact remains technology has, was thought as something which could never replace resources. Oil is the one example that's shown that over time technology plays oil also. And you can see the trouble that the Middle East countries are. It's going to get worse. Right now they're stuck at 40. Even if this crisis gets over, no one's expecting oil to hit anywhere beyond 50. Those 130, 140 days are complete history as far as I can see. Technology is there. So technology does not transfer because you sign agreements. Okay, I sign an agreement. Please, you will transfer technology. How will you do it? It's a, it's a, it's a intangible. The only way, empirical studies I'm saying, and there are many of them show, the only way you can transfer it is by learning by doing. You tell a guy come in city. Maruti is the biggest example. Who knew in Maruti? What what did Maruti bring? It brought an outdated uh, uh, motorcycle engine which they put in a car. But if Maruti had not been there that time, can you imagine what would happen to us in 1990s when pollution became a problem? You'd be running the low compression engines. Secondly. They created a new method of working on the floor, the shop floor, which many companies adopted. They are learning by doing, you know, they hire the best labor because they've got standards. Then that best labor finds out that that's will learn over here. And then they quickly learn, leave and join other companies. So learning by doing, getting advantage of external economies and labor markets and in area locations, which is why you get these clusters, which is why you get this is the one you need. And this is not going to happen without FDI. So let me sort of uh, stop here and say two things. First of all, just because we don't know anything else, let me be with my fellow economists say, I can't say mujhe pata nahi. You know, finance minister say, batao ke, if I say mujhe pata nahi, then say, bhaiya, wapne jau, to I have to say something, right? Absolutely, now what you must do, Change this and do that. Nothing will happen. As far as COVID is concerned, till that fear goes away. Because more money does not remove fear. The dead, you sad part of, well, not sad, I guess. It's a terrible word to use the public at this. Unfortunately, the, this thing seems to be killing the poor and the rich both. It's very worrying, right? Because TB you can ignore is something which only hits the poor now. But this is hitting everyone. I mean, ministers are being hit by it. Unheard of. That an epidemic in India can hurt even the wine. I mean, actors are in, Amitabh Bachchan was in hospital, very unheard of. So, you know, this is such an uncertain thing that every time I think of going, I say, if this can happen to Amitabh Bachchan, then I run back inside. So, unless you solve that problem, 
this pump priming, and you have two cases which hasn't helped. One is the US and the other is China. China is going to recover for different reasons. But in the US, by the way, spent plenty of money. Just go back to Trump's. So I'm saying that that COVID, let's forget. COVID is a medical crisis. Let's not pretend we economists know or have any idea as to how to deal with the COVID. As we don't. At least I don't. Coming to the rest, what the COVID does it makes us stop and think again, like the foreign exchange crisis. So what can we do new? Digital transactions. You know, we have learned institutions. You can actually be much more efficient. Just wouldn't try it because you didn't need to do it earlier. Efficiency can increase, certainly. Certain pay will also increase for those who don't use it. But things may change. But I said one thing. Today we are ready. When we have stopped taking this time, say that, look, it cannot be same discussion of trade policies before. He raised tariffs, therefore protected. He reduced tariffs, therefore non-protected. These are meaningless. Nature of world trade has changed. Nature of institutions has changed. Nature of people has changed. So we have to get back to the WTO drawing table. You know, one, one hates to you know, ever say that someone like Trump could ever be right in anything. I hate to say it, but he's right. You've got to redo the WTO. This multilateral institution which began in 848, you know, the world scenario is changing so fast, you have to redo it. It's not going to work for anyone. Five years down the line, India will be clamoring for changes in the multilateral. Maybe that's the way to go. Maybe the price will help us that. And maybe that will allow us to make change in trade policy, which are more in consonance with the changing nature of world actors and world commodities. I think I'll stop. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Pant. Without wasting any time or any further ado, I would now invite our chair for the session. Professor Marjit, yes. Please. Sir, your camera has got off again. Yes, please unmute yourself. Thank you. Yes, please go on, sir. Yes. Uh, it was uh, very uh, refreshing to hear Manoj uh, pointing towards uh, certain very, very important facts. Uh, perceptions and things that we should uh, remember when we talk about the trade scenario for this country and in general, how to appreciate the post-COVID uh, economic scenario of, of the world. Uh, he pointed out uh, quite a few uh, interesting um, attributes of the process. And I think the first and foremost is the idea that uh, because uh, things are very, very uncertain and are not known at all. So we as economists try throwing around the policies that we are familiar with and just say that, you know, these will work. Now, as he has pointed out that, uh, you know, all the recessions that were, that we experienced before COVID-19 are very different from the one that we are experiencing now. So you have to think about uh, in a different way. And in many ways, you may not have much to do about COVID actually. So you have to actually think about, uh, the economists should think more about the economics rather than health conditions, because the doctors or some scientists will, will, will think about it. And maybe, you know, we would be uh, uh, suffering now, not only this year, but next year also. But the fact is that the humankind have been surviving for hundreds of thousands of years. So we will survive and we will have to figure out how to survive in, a, in, a, in this kind of a constrained environment. So 
the interesting part that that he pointed out which you uh, possibly uh, i think one should make note of is the he, he said that agricultural exports have not been affected much actually we should now one good thing that happened uh, with covid that i understand and i think uh, monoj did not have time actually to develop into that but i think it's important to understand that agriculture is a sector which is actually doing well because you know because agriculture agriculture does badly because either you have rain you don't have rains or you have too much of rain but otherwise we have potential in agriculture and agriculture should in fact agriculture growing at a rate of 3 plus percentage point over a quarter you know is a remarkable achievement for indian agriculture and we, and there is one little bit of very interesting statistics that the percentage of average percentage of fallow land you know which is very typical characteristic over agriculture that average percentage has gone down drastically which means that agricultural uh, efforts are are being uh, in sustained in, a, in an interesting manner and you have to relate it to the recent policy that the government has taken you know independent of the fact that you may not like the policy or me like the policy you may think that it is not going to do well to the performers and so on but the fact remains that there is an opportunity for more interest of private investment in agriculture simply because we are almost sure now the standard routes of or the avenues of investment you know are not going to look up you know in the next 6 months for example or in you know in maybe next one year we do not know maybe they will look up but this this is again uncertain so good thing is that agriculture we should focus on agriculture is a positive thing that you know because of you know we are doing the right thing because of the wrong reason maybe but the question is that agriculture needs to be focused and that's he has pointed out that agricultural exports have not been affected and it is the basic idea is that if you uh, if, you know there is no broad based uh, rethinking about what indian economy will do after covid because first of all the government has to face up to the challenge now that is one point and the second point is this medical hardware software the way uh, manoj is interpreting that the idea is that you did not have enough ppe supply of that but once you started producing that you found that you have a comparative advantage in that in some sense so you start exporting ppes outside so so basically sometimes you know we we study this in our trade theory revealed comparative advantage we actually sometimes do not know until and unless you get into that business and and basically you know we are not in ideal you know ideal conditions actually will not make you exert to the extent that you should and therefore things sometimes happen for a reason and then it happens uh, you know that uh, we we are more more inclined to to experiment with certain things and we do it well you know that's that's kind of thing uh, and there is one point he mentioned which is very interesting that that the build up to the crisis of the earlier years was huge expansion in trade and output and gdp you know everything is expanding and so on etc china coming through wto you know into the main foray getting an mfa status you know and everything and so on and then you have but then things actually went wrong on their own so this is you know when covid actually affected us couple of years before that if you look at you know forget about the other crisis but britain you know thought they will get get out of brexit big time you know this there is so you know this is not really britain is increasing tariff with european union or actually the erp is being increased or whatever it is it is a jump you know what we call sometimes it's a finite change that is we are not in eu anymore and 
that has led to many such you know sort of you call it protectionism we call it in fact you know this is something beyond protectionism so that trend has been there and before we could digest the consequence of that we were hit by covid 19 so that's 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 there so far as uh, trade is concerned as i'm i complete i'm in complete agreement with with manoj in two aspects is that uh this rtas and so on that india is a part of china is all part of main issue all has been actually to get more markets for china because china you know doesn't want markets in vietnam or in or in you know or in indonesia or in some other countries because that's not they are looking for and given the fact that donald trump actually you know uh, you know badly or goodly we do not know you know they are trying to cut back chinese imports there you know i can as an economist i can see that most of this is due to wrong reasons you know but the, the fact is that china wants more markets in this big country it's growing it was growing at a rate of 9% 10% for decades and now it is you know it has come down to you know 5% 6% and now cut back to you know they are used to it although i would think that china you know sort of growing at a rate of 5% where the world does not grow at all you know makes chinese the richer people anyway but you know you are wished the, the point is that there is this this business of uh, you know this is called the memory short mem you know it's the sense that we don't it's the is the habit formation syndrome that we call it in consumption in the dynamic sense that there is a habit of actually getting you know earning like 8% growth rate but now if you are 5% you know sometimes in india we have this huge debate that why india is losing 0.5% in growth but india was not growing at all for many years and was growing around 3% for for decades and then india grows at a rate of 4 5 then people are you know the people actually spend sleepless nights on what's going to happen to indian economy which is not right you know anyway so but anyway technology it is technology which drives trade it is the expansion of markets which is the same argument as long time back in colonial period also but they are now camouflaged and uh, you know kind of uh, they they are given a different kind of a got an approach and the fact is if you look at the multilateral agreements that india has with other countries and rtas and so on in fact i was listening to uh, the 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 minister of commerce and industries in a in a talk that monoj organized for the institute the fact is half of you know most of us do not really know whether india can actually salvage something from those kind of uh, multilateral agreements and what india did you know i think it was reasonable that they put their foot down and said we are not going to you know before we we actually allow more markets to for you why don't we take into account that india has a lot of interest in other markets and why 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 aren't you look at why aren't you looking at that so we have to keep on doing and a bad situation or a kind of a contractionary situation makes you more guarded and maybe your intentions to to actually or inclinations towards that kind of a policy question or policy queries are are intensified and that's good i think that's that's very very important the um, uh, so the multilateralism important uh, you know learning by doing that he said was was very important i have only couple of points before i i i i i finish my part uh, one is that uh, you know there are certain industries that you can see that india is good at or was getting to be better but those industries really have suffered that is tourism for example tourism industry is actually gone down the drain so in a way that we have to figure out that how to develop the tourism within the country much more than you know expect tourists to come from abroad 
and also this tourism is a contact intensive industry which means that if there has to be gatherings there has to be people moving around so there is a big question mark as to how how that industry is going to be pampered to some extent and and this thing the second part which i think is good for india and i think manoj has already uh, said about it is the idea is uh, the idea that that uh, that if you are not exporting too much at this point the things that you are exporting a lot or you are you are actually good in in terms of the growth of exports is it led services and so on which you are going to do anyway in fact there is a recent data that i saw today they are saying that e commerce the, the booming of e commerce has actually you know you know increased the number of white collared workers being hired for this this sector by at least 2 million in the last uh, you know 6 months or or 4 months so from from uh, from uh, i think from 7 to 9 or 5 to 7 something like that so basically you know booming of uh, of in, of of uh, of, uh, of uh, you know e-commerce is is a good thing and india is not going to suffer to that extent because this online syndrome is going to be much more intensified in post covid world independent of whether a vaccine is 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 discovered and invented your know, people even having the finest vaccine will still think thrice before getting into a crowded market or something like that you know as long as as long as you are not like some of our crazy citizens who actually do that now because of durga puja and others but i cannot blame people because i cannot blame some people because they are also earning their livelihood you know two and half percent of uh, death rate is something of course is important whether i am in that 2% or i am in the 98% but if you tell this to somebody you know whose livelihood is in question he would take that statistics very seriously so you have to think of and india is a country with uh, 50% of gdp coming from the informal sector and and 90% of people in the informal sector what do you expect my salary gets deposited end of the month fine i can say a lot of things uh, the doctors may look at only at the hospitals and the possibilities of medical health and services you have to be really aware you know very aware citizens i understand but i can't tell this to to the rickshaw pullers to the little shop owners the sellers so we have to figure a way figure out a way you know hard immunity or no hard immunity how we can sustain this we have sustained one of the you know the the worst respiratory diseases in the world you know the 2018 health data tell us that india every day 1 lakh of people are infected by acute uh, respiratory syndrome 1 lakh and major major problem of this uh, this this pneumonia or or that kind of uh, of an acute syndrome is because the pollution that we had delhi is being a prime example for that but we don't you know we don't give in that easily indians are very hard to crack because if you have been in that kind of pollution for 20 years then you are very different from other citizens of the world because essentially you are used to it so the death rate is not very high but yes there would be medical concerns and then and so on but indian prospects are not so bad so far as in, uh, this informal uh, this this uh, information technology is concerned fdi in some ways you know there is the evidence that we see now you know if you have quarterly data till april or something like that from the rbi you will find that india's trade balance and fdi inflows and foreign reserves all are doing very nicely you know because the fact is that people who are scared of staying in the european countries on the us united states because of the protectionist threat because of other kinds of things 
are going to put you know previously every hundred dollars they earned they would put you know twenty dollars to India and eighty dollars where they stay but now that has increased to from twenty to fifty because they think that situation may not be as good for them as to sort of stay back in this country for a long period of time and there would be a lot of backlash you know thanks to COVID and thanks to bad economics there will be a lot of backlash in these countries there are other issues. India's import bill has cut been cutting down. It has been brought down drastically. Manoj has said, technology has made it a point that oil cannot be cannot go up to 150 rupees, you know, barrel or something like that. You know, which 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 has to be, it has to be that that we are cutting. You know, so basically, our current account did not look that clumsy, because it is the ex so far as the exports are concerned, we are not great great exporters at this stage. But we are big importers and the imports are hard. But I'm not taking this as a sign of welfare. But I'm saying that actually uh, this cutback in GDP and things like that, given slightest, slightest opportunity, it will be a V kind of a, of, of, of a coming back. But at the same time, we should think, yes, India needs its industries is to be serious about its industries. But now you see the contact intensive industries are also a problem for the world. And so the question is that more robotics, more automation is going to be the order of the day. The problem is how to make your workers more skilled and more semi-skilled, more adaptive to this kind of situation. This is a, is a perennial problem for India. India has to be careful because not really fighting China on the battleground is the question, but you are already losing ground so far as economics is concerned. So basically the idea is that you have to increase your share of industries in your GDP. Try to, you know, China, you know, I don't mind have China having a great trade uh, surplus with us, but that should not mean that, you know, we are going to export, we are going to import even the cheapest products which could produce cheap at India. You know, Banarasi saris and the images of, of Ganesh. You know, it gives me pain as a Hindu, you know, to be, to be saying that we are actually importing the images of the deities and the famous Banarasi saris. You know, I go to this place in Benares, you know, where is this uh, big, those local merchants and so on are there. And they said that, you know, you know, sir, why are you so fussy about buying, you know, this Indian, this thing you said, we have got Chinese Benares, you know, why don't you buy that, which is like one third of the price that you can, this thing. Now, this must be wrong something somewhere for us. So I think that all of this need, need independent of COVID, all of this need very serious attention. That's why our rate of investment is so low. Why it is stagnated around 25, 27% of GDP for a long period. Why we can't be a good industrial state. All these problems are there. But India, I think, does have a very good prospect. We should not be at all pessimistic about in the Indian concern. Yes, we should do much better on the health scene. Maybe we should have, should have, we need more, more hospitals so that the infection, you know, even if it is there, people are treated well. But at the same time, what, what Manoj has said, the classical problems of trade are still there. There are some new problems. These has to be broad-based. COVID-19 is a passing time. So if we, if you, if you try to integrate everything with COVID-19, also try to look at the better aspects of COVID-19, making us more guarded about it, making us more aware about it. And, and the, the other aspects is that what we should have done much earlier, we should do now, and we should continue to do in, in, in future. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Professor Marjit, for uh, giving your reflect, reflections. Now, without wasting our, our 
any further time, let me introduce uh, our uh, discussion to reflect upon Prasapan's lecture. So, uh, Simi, why don't you go on and introduce yes. uh, Mr. David? Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, I take my uh, delight to, uh, I express my delight to introduce to you Mr. David Raskina, who is the Managing Director and Chief Executive Officer of the Export-Import Bank of India. He has served as a member of several working groups set up by the RBI, the Reserve Bank of India, on facilitation measures for exporters, working, working capital finance to software units, etc. Mr. Raskina has also served as the resident representative at the bank's Washington DC representative office. He has lectured on various aspects of export financing at the National Institute of Banking Management, RBI's, banking, RBI's Bankers Training College, the Jawaharlal Nehru Institute for uh, Development of Banking, as well as various bank training colleges, academic institutions, industry bodies, both in US and India. Mr. Raskina is a member of the national jury for the CII Exim Award for Business Excellence, a total quality management award based on the total quality management model of the European Foundation for Quality Management. Mr. Raskina's insights on export credit and Indian economy are highly sought after. We are so grateful to you, sir, that you could join us. I now invite you to make your comments. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, Dr. Mehta, for your kind introduction. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's been a pleasure to accept this invitation from IMPRI and to listen to the lecture by Professor Pant. Uh, Professor Pant, it is often said that economics is the dismal science, but I notice you managed to bring a smile to many of our faces repeatedly. So I, I don't know, either you're not an economist or economist is not a dismal science. After all, we'll have to pick and choose, but uh, may I compliment you on a wonderful exposition where without using any numbers, you were able to make your points so brilliantly. It was really a pleasure listening to you. And I fully concur with what you said and what Professor Majid also just said. COVID is a one-off instance. And just as the Monetary Policy Committee looked through current spikes in inflation to look at monetary policy, we need to look through COVID. Whatever are the challenges facing Indian exports or the opportunities for Indian exports, they existed before COVID and they will exist after COVID. And we need to look at them without the lens of COVID. If we look at Indian exports between 2016 and 2019, three to four year period, Indian exports actually grew at a CAGR of 8% over this period. Now bear in mind that this is in dollar terms and the rupee was depreciating over this time. So if we take a look at the exports in physical units or in rupees, the growth is even more. So on the one hand, we can be very happy and sit back and say, hey, exports are doing very well. They're probably doing even better than many other aspects of the economy. And that is a valid way of looking at it. But is it the only way? Perhaps not. Because we also need to look at exports in two other frames of reference. One is how are we doing vis-a-vis -vis the potential that we have for exports? And there the answer is not so good. Secondly, at the end of the day, we export in order to earn foreign exchange to pay for our imports. What we've actually been seeing is that the trade deficit has been widening. The current account deficit has not come under control as much as we would have liked to. So therefore, clearly, we can't be happy with the way exports are going just as it is. We need to disaggregate and find out what has gone wrong. What are some of the issues? leaving aside COVID that have maybe prevented us from growing our exports even faster. The challenge, of course, is going to be that because of COVID, the global demand for exports itself is reduced. Global trade 
we're based on the WTO is going to shrink anything from three to 13%, depending at what point of time you pick an estimate and go with that. So let's come and look at Indian exports per se. Where exactly are we perhaps not doing well? And a critical point was already mentioned by Professor Pant when he spoke of technology. He spoke of a new world, of a new area of technology coming in as a new factor of production, leaving aside the original uh, classical factors of production. Let me give you some numbers. I'm sorry, Professor Pant, I'm a banker and bankers love numbers. So I have to throw some numbers uh, at you. If you look at the technology content of Indian exports, then a different picture seems to be arising. This share of our exports, high-tech exports, that is the technology content, was 7.7% in 2008. This increased to 9% in 2018. So in 10 years, the shift was hardly anything much. What about our competitor nations? It's difficult to identify a single competitor nation. So let's pick some peer, approximate peers. For Hong Kong, the share of high-tech exports was 64.6%. 64.6%, we were at 9%. Now you'll tell me, okay, Hong Kong is a small enclave. There's a lot of uh, uh, enclave trade going on. Fair enough. For Malaysia, it was 52.7%. For Vietnam, Vietnam, it was 40.1%. These figures are so stark as to leave us almost gaping. Clearly, we are not spending enough on R&D because ultimately technology exports flow from a R&D base which develops new products that the market will want, both the domestic as well as the international market. And we need to be looking at uh, what are we doing as far as R&D is concerned. R&D is predominantly driven in the government sector. Government fosters academic institutions which engage in R&D. And of course, there are certain private sector institutions, but the disparity is huge. The private corporate sector does not pay as much attention to R&D. You have exceptions in pharma and fine chemicals, but the vast scope of the Indian corporate sector is simply not willing to take the long view and spend as much on R&D as it needs to. Here is where the public sector is actually taking the lead and has a much greater reliance and a much greater uh, idea of the importance of uh, technology and R&D as compared to the private sector. We also need to look at global value chains. Today, the world has become, there was an old uh, slogan sometime back with mobile phones saying that geography is history. Yes, geography is history in many ways, not only from mobility, but from a product. The products we deal with every day are including components and sub-assemblies from so many different countries that determining value added is a mathematical challenge in itself. So we need to have a much greater participation in global value chains for which we have to build our manufacturing sector, which comes back to what we said earlier. Ultimately, exports are a symptom. They're not the problem. The problem is your underlying manufacturing sector. If the manufacturing sector is in a funk, and a recent Exim Bank paper on Atma Nirvar Bharat pointed out that manufacturing sector is stagnating. If manufacturing is stagnating, then how can manufactured exports grow? It's, it's simply a logical impossibility. So this is something we need to look upon. Coming on to the R&D point uh, particularly, typically developing economies spend less on R&D. Developed economies on an average, and the figures vary, spend about 2% of their GDP on R&D. China's G for spending on R&D as a percentage of its GDP in 1996 was 0.56%. Today, in, in, uh, not today, in 2015, five years ago, it had already crossed the 2%, which is the hallmark of a developed economy. Where is India? I don't want to even mention the number. 
that gives you an idea of what is the challenge facing uh, us. Another point we'll make, and this has a relevance to technology, and uh, Professor Pant mentioned it also, services. We are an economy where services form more than 50% of GDP. Yet when we talk of exports, most of the media, most of the uh, discussion tends to focus around manufactured exports because that is considered to be the traditional exports of goods. But exports of services are important. In fact, we are one of the few countries who run a surplus on services and a deficit on trade, which narrows the current account deficit. We do not give enough credit to services. Uh, the professor, uh, I forget whether it was Professor Pant or uh, Professor Majid who mentioned that our software industry grew perhaps because the government did not know really what was going on. And now that we have a ministry, it might be the other way about. Uh, point is well taken. But this industry developed on its own and made a name for, it, a name for itself. Remember, as a share of manufactured exports, we are at barely 1.6 to 1.7%. In services, we are at 3.5% of global. So our share of global services exports is almost double our share of global manufactured exports. Very crudely, and I know I'm oversimplifying, very crudely, we appear to be more than twice as competitive in services as we are in manufacturing. And yet, as Professor Pant mentioned, we do not pay any of attention to services as a matter of our regional trade negotiations. We do not give sufficient credit to this extremely important uh, aspect of uh, our uh, uh, area. Now, in terms of the FTAs also, I think enough has been said. There is very little that I can add uh, to that. But let me take a break at this point in time. This is Professor Pant's uh, evening and not mine. And I would like to again, once again, mention to him, sir, most impressed at your analysis. It was a delight listening to you. And I hope to have more such opportunities going forward. Thank you to IMPRI for giving me this invitation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, sir, for uh, so aptly putting all, all so many points. Uh, now let us go to our, our uh, second discussant for, for the lecture. Uh, Mr. T. K. Arun. Simi, why don't you introduce? Yes. Thank you, sir. Uh, Mr. T. K. Arun is a well-known journalist, and he currently is the senior editor at the Economic Times. He authors a fortnightly column called Cursor on the Times edit page. Mr. Arun has been with the Economic Times since 1994, except for a brief two and a half years stint when he edited an online portal called Narad Online. Before beginning his career in journalism in 1992 at the Observer of Business and Politics in New Delhi, Mr. Arun was also a technical advisor at the Kerala State Planning Board. He has earned his master's degree in economics from the Center for Economic Studies and Planning, CEST, JNU. Thank you very much, sir, for, uh, for sparing your time from your hectic schedule and joining us this evening for this special lecture. I invite you, sir, to uh, provide your uh, comments. Thank you, sir. Sir, Mike, please. Sir, could you please, please unmute? No, not working. No, it's, it's still not done. Look at the bottom left hand corner of the screen, TK. Yeah, 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 got it. 
Uh, yeah. Hi. Uh, since we are badly over time, I don't want to spend too much time uh, making. I just want to say two, three points. One, this whole notion that supply chains that originate from China or involve China in a very intimate fashion are going to die because of COVID, I think is overblown. That is not going to happen. Now, the experience of uh, a global pandemic shows that trying to hedge against risk in one particular location by locating production somewhere else will not really pan out because that place where you located the uh, alternative site of production also be closed down. So the basic logic of minimizing the cost of production and having economies of scale will continue to operate. So some hedging of risk by diversifying your sourcing to more than one location might take place. But large scale nearshoring, large scale uh, uh, relocation of supply chains, I think will not happen. Secondly, but this does not mean that COVID will do nothing. I think COVID will make some fundamental changes which will last even after the vaccine has been discovered, even after things have come back to uh, full-scale production. For one, everybody has got used to the idea that you can do a whole lot of stuff online. The digital mode of uh, service delivery or working has now proved to be effective. The TCS says that they don't want more than a quarter of their workforce to work in the office. The rest, they say they can work from home. No, some companies don't want that. They want their people to still come and work. But clearly, there's no need for everybody who currently works in an office to come to the office and work every day. People might work from home. They might work from uh, wherever. And if this is the case, if that home for an office that is in London, if that home is somewhere in India, what is the problem? It is possible to reimagine the distribution of work where geography is no longer crucial because you're working from home to spread out the geographical location of workers across the globe, wherever they are capable of being availed of or being purchased at an efficient price and where the quality of work is decent. So this could actually mean additional work being outsourced to countries like India. Now, one sector of uh, companies that are doing well even during the pandemic right now across the world is digital, the uh, tech industry. That is the case in India also. Even today, the guidance for Infosys is up, for TCS is up, for HCL, Wipro, they are up. They are doing well. Now, I think there is the one another factor which we need to uh, take more concrete cognizance of when you discuss economic strategy and trade. The largest proportion of people of an age group who can be trained in STEM subjects right now is in India. Absolutely the largest and nowhere else. In China is declining very fast. In all of Europe together, they don't come to half of what India has. The other source of such young people is now Africa. But the Africans will take a couple of decades to reach a level of uh, adaptability 
uh, where the young people can be trained immediately into the kind of stuff that Indians are today capable of being trained into. So by keeping our quality of education shoddy for a very large proportion of our school and college system, we are actually uh, forsaking very large economic potential uh, we have as a nation. Third, now technology. I think we need to understand technology a little more complexly than purely in terms of uh, how much technology we export. When you say China exports technology, does the technology of China export actually belong to a Chinese company? Are some kind of a global commons are no longer global commons. You assume that Google's uh, technology, Android, or whatever the services they have been providing, they are there for the taking for anybody to access. That is not the case. They have a distinct national stamp and they can be controlled, shut down by the United States government. Now, do you want to be in a situation where you are perpetually dependent upon uh, flow of technology whose tap is in somebody else's hand. Now, the Chinese are clearly going to go ahead and develop their own technology ecosystem. They will backward integrate right from the design of the chips, which currently ARM does for Qualcomm or wherever, or what Intel does. They will do the design. They will develop the machine to build the sophisticated chip making uh, plants uh, which Taiwan currently has, which Intel currently has, and they will develop an indigenous technology system. Now, if you are serious about being strategically autonomous, or having the capability to decide our own destiny, then India needs to have this technological capability. So it doesn't mean that we have a phase manufacturing program for our telephone, uh, for our handsets, where you include the plastic body, the the battery charger, the adapter, and say, aha, we are doing manufacturing telephone. We need to be able to manufacture the chip. We need to be able to design the chip. We need to be able to uh, do the chipset. We need to be able to manufacture or at least have the control the technology or the, uh, or the, or the screen. Uh, so unless we reach there, to say that we are exporting technology will actually mean nothing. So we are at a very primitive level when it comes to our own uh, technological capability. Now, what COVID has demonstrated is that a whole lot of resources that we have at our command can be summoned and channeled to produce concrete results, as in the case of PPP machines, as in the case of the equipment, as in the case of the respirators. Out of nowhere, you got uh, the, your uh, defense organizations to identify the individual components that go into a respirator. Different companies made these individual components. Somebody put it together. And you have his production line in respirators. There's no reason why we can't do that to many things. So today, even a dentist chair is imported from outside. Why? Can't we produce a stupid dentist chair in this country? Could we have not So I think many things will change from realization that these are things we can do. Drugs, for example, uh, the bulk drugs, the active manufacturing, so active, active pharma ingredients that go into uh, drugs, uh, these are all imported from China. But why? 
India used to produce them at uh, scale in the past. But then, thanks to some idiotic uh, policies on price control, and because of Chinese dumping, this entire industry died. We cannot allow this industry to die. And so, I mean, we must do, uh, have a serious uh, thing on technology to develop serious backward integrated capabilities. Now, all these areas which are emerging, the synthetic biology, the, the, the chemistry novel went to CRISPR-Cas9, the gene editing technology. It went as well have been a novel for biological sciences, right? Because it is actually about how you can introduce a particular genetic sequence inside a virus and introduce that virus into uh, the cell or the, or the organism in which you want to do gene editing. And there, it will actually cut the, uh, the gene sequence exactly where you want it to run. Now, where are we in this? The Chinese have the capability, Americans have the capability, the French have the capability, where is India? Now, we need to be able to do this and we need to be able to do this precisely, not just by relying upon some uh, borrowed technology. Uh, the new drugs that will be developed will be uh, a product of synthetic biology. Today, there are cures for certain cancers which are available from the Swiss multinationals at $1 million a dose. It is genetically tailored to a particular individual. Uh, it is being the reality. I think research in uh, viruses that is going on now will produce uh, wonderful cures. But then you need to be there if you want to gain from this. And these will not be uh, amenable to reverse engineering the way we reverse engineered drugs in the 70s and the 80s. So we need to invest massively in our educational and healthcare infrastructure. And this is a basic challenge because it is ultimately human potential which articulates itself as economic and production capability. Company that invests even 3% of their R&D uh, of their revenue in r &D. So we need to have some uh, ambition in our private sector. And the private sector ambitions are destroyed by high levels of uh, protection. The question is not whether they have high levels of uh, effective protection. If they have large amounts of protection, and if we have a financial system, a banking system, which allows industry to make high returns on whatever investment they make, purely by over invoicing their project cost and taking money out of the system, even before setting up a plant, I mean, they have actually made their return. If you allow this kind of a situation to come uh, persist, our industry will have no ambition to create value, to invest in R&D and become world competing businesses. It will disappear. So it is not just a question of, it's an R&D policy. It's your overall economic and political culture which will determine whether our industry has the fire in the belly to be at the cutting edge in technology and in generating real value. And so this is a I mean, huge, huge uh, agenda. The only thing is that COVID has sort of exposed some of the weaknesses that we have. And uh, I hope we will be able to rise to vocation. Now one last thing, I mean, one thing where COVID will change things. As in real estate. If people uh, work from one from home, you know, I have three people working from home uh, in my place. Uh, we have a full house, 
the resources are required. Luckily, our houses, we have three different rooms where people can work simultaneously without interfering with too much. The bulk of our IT workforce, people in their 20s, kids, they live in their flats, fight to a flat, uh, sharing uh, the room. Basically, it's a place where they come home, sleep and drink and generally go work in the office, right? Now, they cannot work from home from these kind of congested places. What is the security of their client uh, data? Uh, how do they ensure that they can work uh, not only really undisturbed, but without data being disclosed to people who should not see that data? So we need a different kind of real estate design coming up. Perhaps larger homes, perhaps professionally run work centers close to where people stay so that you can, you know, pop across and work from there in privacy and security. Uh, you need to have massive investments in cyber uh, security so that you can actually uh, keep your things secure without being sued on by other people. So there are multiple kinds of changes that COVID will introduce and will probably last far beyond uh, the arrival of the vaccine. Now, uh, you know, we are not part of any global supply chains. So therefore, uh, for us, it still matters what kind of trade policy we have. Uh, like, I mean, Bangladesh today has a per capita income that is uh, higher than India's. But 30% uh, of the Bangladeshi government industry comes from Indian investment, right? And that is primarily because Bangladesh has access to uh, Europe and America on professional terms because it's an LDC. Uh, so they might also lose their status, we don't know, because their incomes are going up. But uh, access to markets matters for us because we are not part of any supply chain. And uh, we need to be mindful of this. And the bulk of our protection actually goes to our largest industries. We had a minimum import price of steel. We had an uh, anti-dumping duty on steel and in, on synthetic fiber. We have protection for aluminum. What about the downstream industries which use steel, aluminum, synthetic fiber? And what, what, what do they do? What protection do they get? Their costs are high because you're protecting our large industries. And their products in turn become non-competitive because a lot of these duties cannot be drawn back. So we have to rethink our uh, basic competitiveness by, on what kind of protection we offer our large bulk producers. Those inputs are used by industry at large to produce the goods that people consume and, uh, and they export. I think I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you. Th thank you, Arun, sir. Uh, in the interest of time, uh, Professor Pant, should I collect all the questions and come to you? Yes. Yes. Uh, so uh, many questions have come. Uh, just uh, uh, adding to what, what Arun sir has said that we all know the Zhangzhua data company based in China spying all of us uh, here. So again, those concerns are also are coming uh, when we're talking about tech. And Arun sir also mentioned uh, something about real estate. Uh, a design. I am working with uh, Tongzhi University in China, and there I am with Professor Su, and I work on housing and real estate. There actually they are doing that uh, with simulation and other things, designing houses. And I, I really can't tell you over WeChat, and we are having that uh, things. Uh, they are far ahead uh, uh, in respect uh, of what we are doing. They are also having industry IoT. Many things are changing, but I totally agree with what Arun sir is saying that. Uh, the larger trade thing will not change. Uh, we have Atmanilhar Bharat. Uh, UK, Britain has something called Project Defend. Uh, so uh, I would totally agree with what Professor Pant is saying, that nature of trade is changing. Uh, 
uh, the, the protectionism, our chair really mentioned that this is beyond protectionism, uh, non-tariff barriers and other thing which Sir has raised. And Sir has really highlighted that the technology and R&D, our discussions also highlighted uh, that those, those are the things we really look, uh, need to look at. And uh, in terms of tariff, I really wanted to add that uh, the, the, the terms of trade between US and China, US has raised their duty from 7% to 20, 21%, vis-a-vis uh, -vis China has raised from 17 to 21%, the average figures which what the economist is re uh, reporting. Uh, I, uh, most of the questions, uh, uh, thankfully, is on China. So I think Sir can give a, a normal uh, commentary on China, what is going on that part. Uh, but Sir, uh, RCEP, many things Sir has really touched upon. Uh, their company Ant also had IPO this uh, last week uh, in New York, and they have more than 1 billion active users of that digital uh, banking there. So that is also the terms of services trade also, I think we will have to see. Uh, really, sir, one phenomena I really uh, uh, like to add also because of US-China trade war and now what the global, uh, global situation is. Uh, earlier also, uh, during the last decade, one phenomena uh, which uh, the global media is rather saying the globalization, which our chair also, uh, in fact, Professor Pant also raised. And now we are into this uh, deglobalization. Sir has also mentioned that uh, this crisis is, this corona crisis is exogenous crisis and the, end, the endogeneity of the globalization and uh, suspicion or, or on, the, on, the, on the supply chains, global supply chains, that was uh, increasing. Arun sir uh, also highlighted that there will be some protectionist measure from, com, uh, from countries into that, but not the large scale. Uh, sir, what, what do you think that looking into the long-term expectation or expectation would be the changes going forward uh, for India? Uh, especially this in, in the short and short to medium term uh, affecting all of this. And uh, uh, really, really, sir has said that uh, this has made up, uh, this has made up stop and rethink again. And how do we do it again and negotiate? So sir, what should be the uh, 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 way ahead? Also the numbers have come and, and they are also not pessimistic. I would say the numbers are really reaching our macro economy is strong. So what really our trade policy or direction should be uh, over to you. Few, some more questions have come, but uh, in the interest of time on Doha development round, there is something and uh, on manufacturing. Uh, one question is, is on STEM to Arun sir. Uh, uh, I, I would suggest to send you in the, in the chat box. Uh, Professor Pant over to you. And sir, if you allow, we can have one, one minute to our discussion. If, if Professor okay. Pant over to you. So what do you want me to answer? No, sir, the concluding comments, I would rather say. Okay, so you don't want me to specifically answer the question. Yeah, yeah. Sure. See, I, I think I by and large agree what people said. You know, I, I was simply trying to argue that this discussion of trade policy around COVID is a bit overdone. I mean, COVID is a medical issue. Will it as a crisis lead us to change our trade policy? I don't know. Uh, all I'm saying is nothing much has changed. You know, now, you know, I think Arun and TK and many people talked about. I'm glad we all agree on two things. One is the role of technology, one of R&D. I mean, at least I'm glad we are. Now, how do we do this? Now, I am, I'm simply saying that sometimes it may not be a great idea to reinvent the wheel. You know, you don't really want to start making microchips again. Maybe for 30 years from now. There are two or three companies make microchips. It's really not worth the effort trying to make our own microchips. 
There is also compared advantage in rediscovering technology. It's like there's a compared advantage in production. I'm not too certain that uh, rediscovering, I'm simply saying that the studies I have seen show creating an ecosystem for technology is far better. And the one thing that has completely failed, and there's plenty of evidence to show it, all these agreements which says, let us have an agreement for transfer of technology. Or let us have an import of technology, which is 80s policy, is a complete failure. As far as either productivity or exports, that's a complete failure. Unless you're part of the ecosystem, there's a lot of work today being done in what is called network interactions. And I'm going to quickly mention one thing which comes up from some of the things many people say. You know, people mentioned our textile industry, people talk of Bangladesh. You forget that Bangladesh's performance, apart from the GST, GSP preference they have, is not entirely because of Bangladesh. Bangladesh's industry has been led by the South Koreans. They relocated it. Always the Bangladesh industry in textiles has been done by the South Koreans. And they cater to one market, the US market. You notice one thing, small thing. In Bangladesh, you cannot get t-shirts with pockets. Because Americans don't buy t-shirts with pockets. You cannot try buying a, a good t-shirt pocket. You won't get because they are catering to the market. And secondly, they have removed all possible labor restrictions on women and time, etc. Can we do it? Bangladesh can do it with 85% of the export revenue comes from export of garments. And they've been in business for a long time. Here's what, uh, what uh, the, take the case of Indian textiles. 23% of exports sometime in the early 2000s, today down to 12 or 13%. There's no doubt restructuring. Why? Because we were not part of any chain. Forget this word called supply chain. We're not part of any chain. And there was a deliberate reason for that. The political reason does not get on to. I'm saying you do have to become part of some supply chain globally, but that's how production is structured. Will it change? I don't think so. It's most cost-effective to be able to produce wherever there's combined advantage and sell where the market is. No one trades in final goods anymore. Everyone trades in intermediates. You want to sell cars, no one buys and sells cars across countries. They make Toyota uh, Asia is completely different from Toyota Latin America. No link between the two. And Toyota North America is a completely different thing. So this kind of regional looking at markets, whereas global sourcing of inputs is what is the standard pattern, which is why you want to be part of the other thing. Now, that is precisely what I'm saying that India has never been able to do. We have never got involved because we felt that, no, no, we will make something better than everything else. There are only two countries in the world who be stupid enough to try to make a car be indigenous. One is Malaysia Proton and India, I have not mentioned. It's not a good thing to mention, but one, only one unit of the car was made in February, even before COVID. These are the only two countries. Even that Proton Malaysia has given up, now they collaborate work. It's silly. It doesn't make any sense. It goes across all economics. Now, what does Indian trade policy do? I'm simply trying to point out that instead of going about this beaten track, and some of the best-known international trade theorists keep harping on that business, that your protection is doing your duties are going up. I'm saying that is not protection. If you simply reduce all your duties to zero, doesn't mean you're going to be very competitive. There's an ecosystem that goes into protection, which is part of it. I'm saying ERP as a quantitative method is a far better method of calculating. If you want to argue something is protected or not, let's at least begin from there. Let us not get into these 10% up, 20% down. I you know, think a very interesting last statistic. A 92,008 study by Krugman, which he did for the Brookings uh, Foundation, 
And he said, let me go into this issue. Everyone's saying, you know, the Americans are having a very tough time because the Chinese are overrunning us with their products. And he looked at just one industry, the computer. He had a lot of funding, so he could do that. So look, computer industry, it was largely centered around production in China. And he said, let me remove from all Chinese, calculate all Chinese imports which go into the electronic industry. They come from South Korea or South Asia. Let me remove the cost of all the imports. And then let me look at the price which they export at and the price which is sold. China gets barely 5.5% of annual. But did, now if you do that, they'll say, oh my God, we get 5% but your 5% is something you won't get anything otherwise. You have to put China at that point of time, early 2000s, that 6% of the value added was enough. That's what they needed. They were first trying to raise the salary from what the Chinese salaries were in the early 1980s or 70s. We want to straight go to the, either the, uh, uh, the South Korean per capita income or to the uh, or to the American per capita income. Why don't we say, let us raise. Now the latest crazy connection is coming with Bangladesh. Everyone knows that per capita income is a completely a function of exchange rates. China, Bangladesh has been letting its currency devalue. So they earn more dollars. Their whole economy is export-oriented. Ours is not. We've got so many other considerations. It's the most foolish thing to say, oh my God, Bangladesh's currency has become very strong. Someone wrote to me, you in Bangladesh country become very strong now. Has become weak. So these are very silly debates to get into. And you know, the good developed countries, developing countries don't get into these kind of debates. The debate is, are we protecting? Why? We have liberalized our foreign investment policies more than most countries I know of. Still, why doesn't it happen? And that's a regional issue. Foreign investment, that's my last thing I would end on. India policy, all policies regarding trade are made in the center, but they are implemented in the states. And you can do whatever you want. In the state, I have met the same central government officials who are anti pro WPO in the center. They go and work in the state and they become anti WPO. The nature of the boss So, unless we can figure out how to solve the center state problems, you will never get. Because you don't, barring a few, that is why your uh, protect your 1991 reforms were very successful because they only required changes at the center. Exchange rates, tariffs, that's it. Beyond that, everything is state-oriented, whether it's agriculture, whether it's FDI. Unless we look inside and look at the ecosystem, then, then that is a far better thing, I believe, to concentrate on than the issue of trade policy. And COVID, as I said, <clears throat> Maybe a crisis which we should be using to solve our problem. Look at this. Let me end with the last one. Look at how we suddenly became an IT expert. There was this crazy thing called the Y2K problem. You know, my God, in 1999, the next year will be 2000. So where will the computer go? It doesn't know any numbers. So we made a lot of money because people said people in India have a lot of time. They can keep doing tuck, 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 tuck. So plenty of time for changing the thing. Turned out it was a waste of time. Turned out the Y2K wasn't a problem, but the crisis allowed them to suddenly people said, well, they do tuck, 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 but lots of other stuff they seem to be doing very well. And let me end with one last fact. Please remember that the Silicon Valley, that's a whole debate for a different topic altogether. The whole Silicon Valley, if you go back, and I've got numbers and data on that, in that time when the industry located from Silicon Valley in uh, California to many of them located 
India. 40% of the engineers there were South Indians. And why did they go to Bangalore? Think of yourself. Why would you come to Bangalore? In 70s, we all know, TK, you are from there, you know that. Bangalore is known as a place where your parents retired because nice weather. Whoever stayed in Bangalore. But they all went there. Why? Because they belong to them. They went there. Why did people go to China in 1979? China was a disaster in 1980. They never Why did they go? Because there were people of Hong Kong. They said, let's bypass all the GSP stuff which we are losing. GSP was a big advantage. So where did they go? China is the obvious place because the brother is on the other side of the road. So the obvious place to go. So I'm just saying, being at the right place, India is once again, I agree with TK, India is the point we could gain from this change which COVID is going to make it. Frankly, on COVID is the one thing which people will not trust China on. Whether the Chinese are guilty or not is not the point. But that's one thing which people are going to remember sometimes. But we have to get our act together. Just because we are the only one there, people aren't going to come. I think I'll stop at that. Thank you once again. I enjoyed the debate. Thank you, Principal. I think uh, our discussions also have many things to touch upon. So, uh, or we can also wrap. But uh, Arun sir, would you like to uh, add anything? No, no actually, I have to clear the edits now. I'm very late. Yes, helicopter economy, so many things. <laughs> uh, really, I think in the interest of time, we should wrap. Simi, why don't you propose yeah. a vote of yes. time? Yes, yes, yes. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you very much to everyone. It is my honor to propose the vote of thanks for this special lecture. I, Simi Mehta, CEO and Editorial Director of IMPRI, extend my heartful, heartfelt gratitude to Professor Pant, Professor Marjit, Professor, Mr. David and Mr. TK Arun for generously spa sparing your time from your busy schedules and contributing to such an enriching discussion. I hope we'll have the opportunity to engage with you again in future deliberations. I thank the audience for joining us on Zoom and Facebook Live. I also thank Dr. Arjun and, uh, uh, for moderating the session so well and uh, IMPRI Tech team for handling the virtual meeting so well. Thank you again and I wish you all a very, very wonderful evening. Stay safe and thank you. Have a good evening. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you all.